Being in community practice, it is scary because we do not have any financial support from outside sources, but that also gives us the greatest amount of freedom. I really believe as a clinical researcher that when I'm doing research, I actually have to be a good clinician first. That was doctors Michelle Teo and Janet Pope talking about the professional distinctions between academic and community streams in rheumatology. They are our guests on this episode of Around the Room, the Canadian Rheumatology Association podcast. Welcome back to Around the Room. I'm your host, Daniel Ennis. I'm joined today by two incredible Canadian rheumatologists. I am Michelle Teo. I am a community rheumatologist in Penticton, British Columbia. I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm a rheumatologist at Western University, London, Ontario, Canada. I'm a professor of medicine there, and I'm the division head at St. Joseph's Healthcare or Health Centre in London. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Great. Dr. Teo represents a highly personalized and highly efficient community practice, while Dr. Pope, you represent more uh, academic-focused rheumatology. And we're here today to explore some of the merits as well as maybe some of the pitfalls, too, of your various practice settings. The idea here is really to offer some perspectives on a choice that a lot of young rheumatologists or trainees really have to wrestle with before they um, choose a stream. And I think that we all, myself included, feel that once you pick, it's hard to switch over. So maybe we'll start off briefly. Michelle, we'll start with you. Can you describe where you work and the population that you serve? So, as I mentioned, and thank you very much for that introduction, I work in Penticton, British Columbia. It is a small urban community. I invite everyone who is listening to come during the months of uh, May to um, September when you actually see there are people there, and it doubles in population thanks to tourism. Uh, but the catchment area, it's about 78,000. Uh, this is a community that is known as Dinosaur Valley, and it's not because we have many dinosaur bones. It is because... Uh, it is a place for retirement, and so we have a very large elderly population. So uh, there is most certainly no shortage of patients uh, for rheumatologists there. And can you describe your model of practice there? Oh, all right. You, know, you said I only have half an hour? Oh, God. <laughs> give, me, give me the highlights okay, of your practice. Absolutely. So we'll come back to some of the specifics after, too. Absolutely. All right. So um, the model of care that I practice in is called an interprofessional model. Many of uh, the listeners will likely know that BC is the, the birthplace of rheumatology nursing for many reasons. Some of it was uh, started from a provincial level. But through that, that when it first got initiated in 2011, thanks to our very forward-thinking president, Dr. Jason Kerr, we have established now the standard of having rheumatology nurses in our clinics. And the work that I do is looking at how those nurses can be incorporated in an everyday rheumatology outpatient-based practice, uh, which is what most uh, rheumatology practice is. So my team and I, we over the past, uh, wow, seven years that we've been there now, uh, we have experimented and implemented different models depending on the number of nurses that are involved. And we are now currently using three nurses in uh, the inflammatory arthritis clinic, and we're about to dive into um, an osteoporosis post-fracture care um, uh, model of care as well. So you've really uh, refined exactly how you want to have your practice run efficiently, where your patients are going to go, and you're, you're the head of all of that. You have a lot of control over the uh, 
fine details and the dials on your own practice? Absolutely. Now, there is no doubt that uh, rheumatologists get zero support on the most part from healthcare authorities, really anyone. We are responsible to pay for all our own overhead, do our own hiring. We kind of feel left out and quite isolated out in the community, very similar to family practice. But there is uh, a positive note to that. And that means we have full control over how we practice. And being in community practice, it is scary because we do not have any financial support from um, outside sources, health authorities or, or you know whatever. But that also gives us the greatest amount of freedom to make changes to our practice. Now, Daniel, you and me, right? We did not get training in, in, in medicine on how to run a business, small business. Did, did you? I sure didn't. No, right? I didn't. So Daniel, you and I did not get training on how to run a small business, how to hire people, you know, how to be most efficient with our financial resources. And that is the biggest barrier, I think, that exists for people who go out into practice because they don't want to experiment and they think, all this hard effort and all this time I have been waiting, these decades that I have been practicing to get to this point, I want to just start working and be the best rheumatologist I can be and not be limited by experimenting with running different business models. But if we are able to remind people, right, that um, it, it perhaps is not that scary, perhaps give people some sense of hope that there is another way to do things because you have full control over it and have people to, to mentor, right, that people who are willing to go out into community practice now. I'd like to think that some of that fear can be calmed and they themselves can look and find perhaps what works for their style of practice, a more efficient way to run their business. And I want to get back to some of the specific tweaks that you've made to make things really work well for you. Dr. Pope, obviously, that sounds like a very different style of practice than what I assume you are used to and the way things work at uh, Western University. Can you take us through a, a day at work with you? Oh, I can indeed. So first of all, Michelle is very innovative and ready to take the leap of hiring more people. And that is scary financially, as well as you have to manage these people. So HR can sometimes be a nightmare. I really believe as a clinical researcher that when I'm doing research, I actually have to be a good clinician first. So that's not always what researchers think, but it makes sense. So um, in general, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'm slugging it out in clinic. However, I am paying a tithe, but I, whether I'm at work or not, I have some degree of base salary. And I have an army of trainees with me. Good because it's fun and they keep you refreshed and you can teach cool physical findings or other questions. And they can tell me what uh, the newest uh, diabetic drug is. I go, what is that drug anyway? And is there a drug-drug interaction? And they're faster on up to date. However, what's bad is I'm blocking rooms all the time because I'm the rate-limiting step. Sometimes you can't fully... Um, you have to readjust the history and physical. So I won't say I don't believe what they say, but they're trainees and they have different levels of experience. And we have Groundhog Day every four weeks. A new batch of the younger ones come in, our fellows we have for a longer period of time. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and um, I, this is possibly not the most ideal, but I see over 40 patients per day on those days. But I don't eat and, uh, you know, washroom facilities don't always exist. So it's a busy, busy clinic and there are specialty clinics. Um, so I have a lupus clinic, early RA. I do the Ontario Best Practice Research Initiative. Uh, we have our lupus clinic, uh, things like that. And I have a uh, clinical nurse specialist who does 
early arthritis. So she enrolls basically solely into the early arthritis cohort catch, also established uh, RA that she does into the OBRI. And um, she could be, she's excellent, but she could feel like a deer in the headlights if she's doing a complicated scleroderma patient because that's not her scope of practice. So I have an awful lot of people, an army behind me that facilitates getting the work done. But I also do administration, which I like to actually delegate to others. I don't really like admin and I'm kind of not really blue in my personality colors. I'm very red and yellow, as is Michelle. And I'm actually very green, kumbaya, and I think you are too. So I'm like every color but, but blue, so I delegate all administrative responsibilities wherever possible. The rest of my time, I might be preparing talks, giving talks, and traveling. So uh, the people at Air Canada in London, Ontario, know me very well. In fact, uh, they sometimes want to consult on their sore wrist or whatever because uh, I'm there a lot. And I also get a lot of research done, reviewing papers, reading papers, writing papers while I'm on planes. So I like kind of leaving because it's fun and a change of scenery. I love coming back too. So my week is pretty varied, and in general, I don't know what country I'll be in on any Friday. But my secretary does because she's blue and has to do it. So you are slotting in a lot of the research, which is a major component of, I assume, your your actual formal job description. You're yes. actually slotting that in in free time after work, uh, or is that all during work time hours? Right. Well, the, it, it depends on how you look at it. The university doesn't own you 24-7, and they might assume they do, but they Correct. actually really don't. And I can say yes or no to what I want. I can take the holidays I want. We both have to do holidays well in advance. You can't just say, oh, I think I'll be off next week. It'd be a lot of changing things around. But I do have a job description that I have to fulfill. And uh, in general, when we talk about community and academic, I think it's fair to say, although we have wonderful contributions from both sets, I think some community practice people are more academic than academics. But not always, and that's because they're doing teaching, they might be involved in cohorts, they're doing administration of important organizations like the Canadian Rheumatology Association. They're doing a lot to contribute. And I think that that's so important to not burn out. If I just saw a patient, I'd probably be depressed, which I don't really have depression genes, I hope. But if I just did research and did very little clinically, I'd also be uh, too far removed from questions that might be relevant to me and or my patients for excellent care. And in general, in research, you get very humbled because I have proven myself and others, but especially myself wrong many times. I have this idea. We find a trainee or someone to help me uh, conduct the idea. The trainee gets turned on to rheumatology, so that's happy for us. And then really um, we go, oh, the results are really kind of bland, aren't they? <laughs> so there's, you know, there's highs and lows in that. And I assume that sometime during the week you get a minute or two to go to sleep or see your family. So that's yes, important. Too. yes. And we're going to get back to that the, the work-life balance that's in there. Michelle, can you take us through some of the specific variables that you change in your practice to try and optimize that efficiency? And then after, I'm wondering if, Janet, you can talk about if those are actually things that you have control over in your practice, because I think that that might be something that is maybe somewhat distinct between academic stream and private practice, the control that you have over the people you work with and what your clinic space looks like. 
Can you get into that? Right. You know, when we're in training, we have incredible mentors like Janet, right, uh, as role models. And they emulate such an incredible career that so many of us could only dream of being able to achieve. And when we think of, wow, we want to be able to do or just try to do half of the things that someone like Janet does, we think, well, we can't be bogged down with running a business. We And she's right. Janet is absolutely right. The hardest part of my job is being a manager, dealing with interpersonal conflict, right? The bigger the team, the more potential that that can come up. With that being said, I have full control over who comes in. And these are people that I have decided and then spent a lot of time looking to hire and also train. Right? So these are people that have basically know me inside and out. They, I have transplanted part of my brain into theirs. And so they know exactly how to talk to me, how to get my attention, how I need to hear a history, what needs to happen. And we are every day when we go to work, we are sharing the same vision. In sync. In sync. That's right. That is right. So examples, right? What we have the luxury of asking, right? And, and all in the name of efficiency so that we can address access. That is the whole purpose. Access and also making sure it's a win-win for all parties involved, right? And we will talk a little bit, as, as you mentioned, about the work-life balance because rheumatologists, they just can't work, keep working themselves into the ground when we have a third of our rheumatologists expected to retire nationally in the next five years. Right? We need to cut the fat. Where is the redundancy that we see on a regular basis? Where are you feeling that your time is not respected, that it is being spent on an activity that can be optimized? And we keep reforming, transforming, and making adjustments based on that. As an example, do we need to ask, does my nurse even need to ask a rheumatoid arthritis patient, how long is your morning stiffness? Uh, have you been to hospital since last visit? Um, have you had any flares? Absolutely not. What needs to happen is that the patient who is in the waiting room can provide that information electronically on a touch screen that automatically gets put into our EMR, which then calculates every single patient report outcome measure from the DAS to the BASDI to the HAC to the CDI and all those things, right, directly into our EMR so that before the patient even steps into the room to see my nurse, we already know what their problems are. We already know if they've been to hospital. We already know if they've changed a family doctor, if they've had a flare. Now, of course, in BC, we have to pay attention to hack because that's required for reimbursement. But if we see, for example, a patient has come in and their uh, hack has gone from 2 to 0.5, we can say, oh, wow, I mean, how are you doing, Mr. Smith? It looks like things are going well. On the opposite end, if someone came in with a hack of 1 point, oh, I'm sorry, 0.25, and all of a sudden it's 2, uh, we can say, what happened there? And they said, I was in a car accident. And we say, okay, all right. It may have nothing to do with their rheumatoid arthritis or the reason that we see them, but at least we know that there's a change. And it gives my nurses a platform to start the conversation so that we can spend our time as effectively as possible or efficiently as possible talking about what has happened in, in between visits. So you have introduced a number of efficiencies right there things that I should probably learn from because I'm way less efficient than that. Um, I think likely those things do cost money and they cost time in terms of training and organization. And I, I wonder if you have the same control in your practice. So if I'm going to talk about efficiencies and costs, the upfront 
costs of training someone and getting um, getting an efficiency, the time and the cost of mo the money cost is worth it if you can get a really good efficiency. The great thing I have is I have loads of exam rooms. I have at least three. I tend to metastasize into about six, and uh, at, sometimes at the resentment of the other rheumatologists, and I think it's because the the CRAs know, or, or um, assistants know to put them in rooms because I kind of am gonna be so far behind. We can't do the efficiencies of trainees that are the, the ones, the medical students, the uh, interns, PGY 1 to 3, the family medicine, PGY 1 to internal medicine, the, um, the visiting people, because it, by the time they learn that some of the efficiencies, they're good to go. <laughs> they're done their rotation. So we have also that our patients do, every patient at every visit is expected, if they're literate, to write down their meds, any new things that have occurred, any new allergies? Have they been to hospital? Have they had infections? Have they gotten their eyes checked? Are they on calcium and vitamin D, other natural things? Uh, hack, visual analog scales of fatigue, morning stiffness, uh, etc. And a Likert scale of compared to last visit, how are you? Same to much worse or much better. And even on the new visit, we don't change that form. So sometimes they give us a relative to their visit that they've never had. So makes you wonder about the form sometimes, but they might think at time of referral till now. That being said and done, I... If I want to have a proper EMR, I can't do a proper EMR because uh, we have the hospital system that I think was developed in 99, so we probably paid a lot of money for it, the hospital, not me, in 2009, and it's still not running well in 2020 with a lot of inefficiencies in retraining people. We also have joint diagrams that the trainee does and then we do. So I can't get some of the data of uh, and believe the swollen and joint count until I do it myself, whereas my nurse and I are totally concordant. And so that makes a difference. So the inflexibility of office space, your program, the lack of an EMR, and the lack of a proper EMR, it means I can't search a database for good efficiency if, say, heaven forbid a drug got a shortage or recalled or a shortage and we have to change. I'll only know when the pharmacist says you have to change these people on as a, for, for example, chloroquine. I wouldn't know who's on chloroquine, whereas Michelle could search it. But also for research, we have people hand searching four volumes to look at hydroxychloroquine toxicity as an example. So we are finally getting an EMR that the hospital will link. It's not that we couldn't get one. We have to link in good clinical practice our notes for the other docs involved in the care that are within the hospital systems. And we have to have access to scheduling, uh, which is a hospital procedure, but in regular EMRs, it would be an EMR procedure. So it will come, but the lack of flexibility is a problem. However, we do have a lot of freedoms. Like no one accounts, it's different from the US, I can say, no one accounts for your time saying, you know, um, why are you two hours behind? Or why aren't you booking enough patients? Or what is your patient mix or flow? But we are pressured because, again, like the shortage of rheumatologists elsewhere, we have our city, London's about 380,000, but our referral is one to two million depending on what the people have. And although we're getting, thankfully and wonderfully, more community rheumatologists in our area, some of the people that we've trained have stayed and it's wonderful. We still have this pressure of people are coming large distances when they have more profound disease. So a, a sick patient with connective tissue disease, uh, someone on um, multiple advanced therapies that have failed, um, systemic sclerosis patients, bad lupus patients, uh, severe RA, vasculitis, 
appropriately, they're referred into the university. And I think that's good care. And I think in a way, we feel we're taking one for the team in that we have all these resources. I'm not renting the infusion room when someone gets IV cyclophosphamide or IVIG. Uh, there's nurses there to do it. And so some is very inflexible and frustrating because universities move um, like quicksand. It's just sort of stuck and sunk in there. However, um, and Michelle would have this personality too, I'll do workarounds. I won't break any rules or laws that I don't have to break, but sometimes there's a fence and, you know, you can dig under it or jump over it. So I'm actually hearing uh, a lot of similarities between your jobs uh, and some differences, of course. You started alluding to one of the things that I think is maybe central to the conversation is that there is a bit of a filtering of these extremely sick or extremely complicated or patients with, who have accrued lots of damage who end up filtering towards the university system. But this is a, a question really for Michelle. I really don't think that necessarily community rheumatologists handle less sick or less complicated patients think you have very busy practices where you have to handle both. Can you guys address that a little bit? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, as a community rheumatologist, we, for the most part, can't cherry pick, right? So, I mean, we, we get what we get, right? But, I mean, of course, when you have the expertise of people at, you know, the academic centers where there is active research going on, and these are people that have seen more patients in a clinic than I could imagine in a couple of years with a certain diagnosis, of course, for patients that are doing very poorly, uh, that is where they should be cared for, and perhaps there'd be a collaborative approach to care for these patients. That does not happen a lot, however, right? Because we get all comers. And you're, you're right, right, Daniel, we have to be comfortable with not only the bread and butter, but also the patients where, I mean, we, we don't see them very much, right? You know, the half, um, the dozen or so relapsing polychondritis, for example, patients that I have, or um, the, the scleroderma patients that I have in the community practice where I see them. They're generally not the really, really sick, although I just had one pass away last week. But I have a lot of support from the other specialties in the, the community like pulmonary and, and uh, nephro. But you're right, they, uh, they can be the ones that keep us up late at night because we don't see them as frequently, but absolutely, um, they, w we do continue to see and, 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 and um, uh, care for sick patients. But I think for the most part as community physicians, right, we also understand that there are incredible colleagues that we have all across the country that we can also reach out to and ask for advice. Right. And I think that that's so true. So when I'm managing a patient, say a very sick patient from as a, for instance, Owen Sound. So they have a large drive in. There's only one rheumatologist in Owen Sound. Um, I don't know the specialist there. Uh, sometimes rheumatologists feel they don't get the notes from the university uh, setting or heaven really knows what the trainee's written because although we're supposed to read every single note, I'm efficient. I've, I, I, I sign off, well, I don't even know how to sign off notes. Uh, note to self, uh, I've, I've delegated that task to someone else to sign it out because I think speed is more important than 100% accuracy. But the notes, I have always handwritten something and if it's uh, something that's quite urgent or in the near future, I hand that to the patient with a copy so it's on one of our inefficient prescriptions that we I am handwriting but it's a double script so that we have a copy uh, get labs regularly uh, PFTs are being done then you need to see GI we're setting it up just these sort of sound bites 
that the patient will know to show family doc or other specialists involved in their care. So the good thing about the academic practice is we can uh, co-manage quite nicely. We can also give the curbside um, advise people email or use their uh, phone and send a picture and a brief case and I think almost any well I think any expert in rheumatology in Canada is quite willing to give the advice I think we're a great community that way and it's uh, surprising uh, that people reach out and how well we get good answers and I reach out to others as well. I think that's such an important point and, and what I think when I am seeing patients in one setting or another is that we all need each other. Uh, you can't really have the academic uh, clinicians without the community clinicians and, and you can't have the community clinicians without the academic clinicians. We really do need to work together on some of these patients because just because there is a, a really great scleroderma clinic doesn't mean everyone can access it. So you have to be able to get the treatment through rheumatologists locally or internists locally, um, there has to be a way to work together. We and can't just have one and, or just the right. other. Right, and we don't want uh, patients falling in the black hole. So that's of what course. I mean, where it looks like the university has sort of stolen the patient, no notes. And I, I hear that from colleagues, and fortunately not at our institution because our notes do go out quickly, and we're very mindful of trying to involve everyone in the case that gets a copy of the note because I think it's so important and I love the co-management model and even a sick lupus patient with nephritis might be co-managed by uh, nephro one time me the next and back and forth and I pick my favorite nephrologist that like lupus nephritis a different nephrologist that does vasculitis and the regular nephrologist that do other things I might not co-manage as many of my patients with so we have that sort of luxury uh, or if they're from very remote they'll get all their job done if they have pulmonary hypertension and systemic sclerosis, say, they'll fly in from wherever, which is sort of inefficient, but we do have to do a history and a physical. You can't always rely on the physical findings elsewhere. And you have to have tests that do have a diffusing capacity. Their local lab might not even have PFTs, not to mention uh, the tests that we need. So we'll fly someone in and uh, PAH sees them AM, uh, Dr. Sanjay Mehta or Mark Amira. I see them PM, so Wednesday is my scleroderma clinic, and Wednesday happens to be their PAH clinic. Our, our, my ILD colleague as well. Dr. Marco Mira, he does lots of patients on Wednesdays, and that's when I'm doing a CTD. So that kind of model, I think, is best care for a patient. Not all of them need it. And unfortunately, some that need it can't get access, whether even if they live in the city we're in, because um, they haven't navigated the system to get to the right place. Let's go over a couple of other things. Can you give me your one biggest downside of community practice? And then we'll follow up with academic. Uh, the biggest downside of community practice, uh, and it's also the best thing, right? But it is you, you, you're on your own. You're on your own to deal with the, the financial cost and, and the burden. And, and it depends if you have of a private practice or solo practice or if you're in a group practice. And, I mean, there's benefits to both. But, um, you know, I mean, listening to Janet speak and speaking about the, the incredible um, uh, infrastructure she has, right? It's, it's, uh, as, although I have control for my small team, I definitely could not have anything close to that. I mean, and, and even uh, working in a multidisciplinary type of setting, right? Trying to have uh, um, uh, create a joint room GI clinic or a room resp clinic. A room, derm, I don't even have access to a dermatologist. There's one dermatologist outside of the lower mainland, and her wait list is 22 months. So you're the local dermatologist. Basically. 
show me a psoriasis rash and I think I'd be okay. You but would be other great. than that, <laughs> other than that, you try to take a non blurry picture. There you go. Janet, how about you? Right. So, I mean, as you say, it's a double edged sword. Sort of for every positive, there's the other side, the cup being half full or half empty. So, um, when I want to make change, uh, as a, for instance, do a research trial, it takes this ginormous amount of time to get it through the system. And every time you learn, I don't learn the system, but every time the people that I've trained that learn the system, I research people or whomever, every time the system is learned, it's changed with no consultation of the physicians and another layer is added on. Like, what do you mean we need pharmacy for some time when we're not administering a medication? It's a prescription that the patient will fill elsewhere. Why do we need privacy if it's a, a patient form that is done in a data locked uh, area meeting all the levels of security? All these layers um, sort of have the young ones turn away from research, and I think they promote burnout. So if you feel that you have this uh, locus of control that's low, you're more apt to just um, either find a good hobby, which is great and good balance, but you're more apt to think, oh, I'm burning out because I don't have control over anything. The beauty is as an outpatient specialty, we do have a lot of control, so uh, we could always move out, but we're not going to have the basic science people in my division moving out because they wouldn't be able to do that kind of work, and that's what they're trained to do, and that's what they're passionate about. So we really say we could move out, but we need the institution for many things. To that end, what do you think academic rheumatologists can really learn from community rheumatologists? What's a big takeaway there? Well, I think one takeaway that I hope academics have learned with our great colleagues is that uh, co-managing has so much value. The patient will bond to someone well in general. And if you bond well to someone, whether it's part of your team, the co-managing team, et cetera, a patient has a better outcome. They feel better. They're more adherent. And in general, if you don't take stuff, the stuff doesn't work. So we really need adherence. And I think we can learn office efficiency. I think we can learn um, how to be more efficient in the time that we see a consult with. Because again, do I have to ask every single review of systems? Sometimes I do in addition to the patient filling it out because all oh, yes, yes, yes. And the trainee saying they said yes to everything. Well, let's get a real thing. Maybe we haven't asked it right. So I think we can be more efficient. And I think we should all really look at what can the patient do uh, as they're waiting and before they get in the room or before they even come to the appointment that helps us. So there's a, something in between that's not too much information. So with all of that information about academic practice and, and private practice, where do you think fellowship should focus our energy? Should we be training people to be community rheumatologists and they pursue academia if that's their passion? Or do we train them as academics and have them go into community if that's their passion? I might answer that first. So I think both. It depends on the individual. We really have to individualize, and that's this, in a way, think of competency by design. We're trying to individualize their skill set and where they're at on their level of training as much as we can and coach them. But I think you have to look at the interests. And if someone isn't exposed to research, by the way, they'll never do it. And it gives them an appreciation when they're reading the next journal at their own local journal club when they're done that how long and arduous research 
can take and the pitfalls, but they get an appreciation. Okay, this was a well-done study and I understand, or, you know, it was a good question and we still have uh, equipose, we don't know the answer. Uh, what I do think, though, is we need to teach them how to be business people. So uh, fortunately, there is a pharmaceutical sponsor who for many years has sponsored Mind Your Business. I call it MYOB because it's your own business. And we talk to them about academic and community practice, one of the young uh, community practitioners in rheumatology in our area that we've trained, uh, talks uh, a real businessman, rheumatologist who runs uh, an infusion room and other things, was doing orthotics uh, in his office because he was trained and having someone do it, and really runs an efficient practice and different ways to not burn out because he has a lot of uh, variety. And myself, and we all talk, and um, I do mind my business. I think there's some rheumatologists that don't mind their business when they're in the academic area, but, you know, we people need to know to invest and you need to uh, live on your own, uh, your own, basically your retirement money is going to come from what you make today. You're not going to have a big pension, even those at the university don't, we do have a pension, but it's not big. So I think all those skills are important. And I think that should trickle throughout training from really medical school on, but particularly for our PGY four or fives, because practice is around the corner. So a bit of a mixed model there where you definitely have those academic yes, components to it, right. but you have to prepare them for That's right. the components of community And we teach them how well. to bill because I'll tell you, some of them know how to bill really well. If they're going to another province, it's not relevant. But in general, we say, please do a community elective where you'll learn how to bill as one of your goals and objectives in the place you think you're going to practice. Well, maybe one of your trainees can teach me then. Yeah, no, they were good at it. We're efficient, not like overbilling. We're just good billers. <laughs> and, and Michelle, how about you? Where right. do you think we should focus our training? Okay, so what I think we need to do is redefine what community rheumatology means. Now, for most trainees, they are spending the majority of their time in an academic center, right? And, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I'll be honest, I, when I was initially training, thought, I'm, I'm, of course I'm going to do academic. Of course I'm going to be one and, and contribute to, and be one of the amazing rheumatologists that do incredible research or teach and admin. And that's what I want to be because my mentors are like that. I don't want to be some community schmuck and, you know, just kind of deal with the bread and butter. But I had a change of heart. You people can't see, but think of me with my hands open here. And we have to realize that there is the, the most incredible um, leaders and researchers that we have in our community in academics. And then we have the thought of, okay, there's community medicine. And there's this massive void in between. We think it's all or nothing. But in this day and age, that is not what it is. And I'd like to think from my own example and, and my career so far in just the past seven years, you can have a very successful community practice, right? But you don't need to be, I mean, super invested in big trials, doing a huge amount of um, um, grant proposals or what have you on the side of your desk because you're just busy trying to keep your eyeballs above water paying the bills. But if you do have an interest outside of just seeing your patients, so now as many of you know, for me, it's my models of care. Physician leadership and quality improvement. These are two areas that are becoming more and more accessible to not only rheumatologists, but outpatient-based community physicians. I didn't even realize I was doing quality improvement. It wasn't until I started getting involved with it uh, just last year and got a little more formal training, again, in the outpatient setting, 
did I realize, wow, this whole past seven years, I have been doing quality improvement. It's something that is, as I said, very easily accessible. You don't need a PhD in ClinEpi or stats, right? It's making small changes for the people on the ground, right? For those that see, you know, a, a high volume patients, I mean, just like Janet too, right? Um, where you can make a small change and then report on it show it in very simple ways, and then speak to the rest of your colleagues about how they can also achieve similar results. That's quality improvement. And the other area is physician leadership. Now, again, when for most of us, including myself, when I heard the word physician leadership, I was thinking, oh, okay, chief of staff, department head, you know, big time administrator at a hospital where, sure, you could go to the dark side. <laughs> mm. <laughs> or, right? You can speak about something, again, that you are very passionate about on the ground level. Right? And many of the changes that I have made, and as many of you know, you know me as the crazy models of care lady. It is through <laughs> what I have learned from physician leadership and what I continue to learn from it. I've drank the Kool-Aid and I'm hooked. Right? There are so many phenomenal things that our community rheumatologists can do that we have access to, how we can share our message right, through quality improvement and physician leadership. So that is what we need to encourage our trainees. It's not all or nothing, black or white. What you need to say is, and I know, Daniel, you're going to head to this with the next question, what type of career are you looking at? And what do you care about? What speaks to you? What matters to you, as Janet had mentioned? I, being able to identify that, and then, I mean, Janet's done a lot of work with mentorship. We fail miserably, I, I, I believe all areas and specialties of medicine likely, but in the community setting in particular, they have no idea how to reach out to someone. I like your business model. I want to reach out to you. I like the way uh, you um, handle yourself in bedside manner. I want to learn from you. I like the way you dress. Whatever, right? Why are we not encouraging our trainees to reach out to the established rheumatologist saying, teach me more? You have obviously got it right. Please let me learn from your successes. Role models, professionalism, the iterative approach, and morphing over time. I think there are some of the themes you brought up that are just fantastic for every rheumatologist. And I fully agree that way back when there was models of care because the rheumatologist led a model of care where really we couldn't do a heck of a lot back then, fortunately, even before my time, but where the therapists and the rheumatologists and they sat down with a patient and had a plan and tried to uh, fulfill that plan often on an inpatient setting, often very inefficient, but better than nothing for these patients. I think now we're coming back uh, full circle to an effective model of care because there's no reason why any specialist has to do everything or any subspecialist. And we have very well-qualified people that we can teach and train to be as good as we are. And oftentimes, frankly, better talking about sexual dysfunction as a, for instance, in my patients, they'll talk to the nurse about it. They won't talk to me about it. So often better in fulfilling a role. And I really see running, I'll, you know, put a plug in for the FLIRT program, the future leaders in rheumatology, and we'll do another call out soon for the next round, but that we have to teach time management, professionalism, um, how to really change what you're doing, how to be mindful and not burn out. You also have to teach the academics how to get a grant, how to get teaching uh, evaluations and ratings that are appropriate, how to do, write a good exam. But the needs are so broad, and I really think the peer-to-peer -peer mentoring is important. So when there's often uh, people a few years ahead in practice, possibly not even in your community, but that you know from meetings, I think reaching 
working out, it's the best half day of your life, to go there and watch some practice for a half day. It's very, very telling what you can learn, how to change things. Our trainees go off and have watched uh, uh, Carter Thorne and how he practices as a model of care within Ontario. They've gone to other academic institutions to look at how to set up perhaps um, an area of expertise such as fetal maternal medicine, things like that. So I think it's all out there. And I do think if you don't love it, you can't love the paperwork and everything every day. But if you don't wake up passionate, we are so privileged, we can change it. So you can reinvent yourself and there's nothing wrong with that. And we have people that have been strong, strong community practitioners that we think of now as highly academic. Heather McDonald Bloomer, Vivian Bykirk, just two examples from Toronto. Uh, Jackie Stewart that has gone into her area and changed her model of care when she moved from Toronto uh, to Kelowna and she had to change things because it was remote to try to get you know consults in a paw in a fast way when you needed help and she also was a very experienced clinician so on the, the regular treatment didn't of course need help so just a few examples of what can be done that I think is just fantastic I think that those are really excellent points I think that you both have something also to say about uh, quality of life burnout and family planning um, when you decide on your career paths. Can you can you both give us a little bit of uh, thoughts on that to take away? So obviously with seven kids, I didn't get the family planning part right. <laughs> uh, anyway, I do have seven kids. So uh, I think it's really important that uh, you spend time for yourself and that you're good to yourself because first of all, no one else will be. And really, uh, if you have a tombstone when you pass away, your patients aren't going to say, oh, that was the best doctor ever. You want your kids to know who you were and are. You want that you've actually had a fulfilling life. I think medicine's a huge part of my life, but not the only part. And so when I get out of control, and it does happen where I'm just so busy, I, I don't want to let things slide. I want to do a very good to excellent job, not like an okay job. I actually put barriers up. So I've had a couple years where I've said to my admin, um, every second offer of a, a talk somewhere or a meeting to go to, just say no, unless if you think it's the coolest place in the world. And she said, you really want me to give me that authority? And I said, yeah, say no and CC it to me because that was the barrier. I was saying yes, I needed the barrier to say no. So um, when you cycle out of control grant time, uh, things that are due before all these big meetings, there's always so many uh, things that have to be done. I think what you have to do is put it in perspective. I think the best contribution I've made to research is turning the people on that are med keeners, med students, interns, residents, and young faculty, turning them on to learning and lifelong being inquisitive. And that's my contribution. It's not, oh, I discovered the, this or that. And to touch upon what Janet was saying, right? And this is so important for us to remember. When we're practicing, it's so easy for us to think that, oh, we are so important and we do such a great job and no one could ever do as good a job as us. Hmm. Well, for I'm sure all of us do the best job that we can when we see our patients. But where are we truly irreplaceable? And I'm going to tell you right now, if you decided that you wanted to quit your job, there would be a rheumatologist taking your spot in two seconds, right? Without anything, and your patients may miss you for a little bit, but then, you know what? This is the new normal, off you go. Who would say, my life is over, um, the universe has stopped, you know, turning or whatever, when you are not at home? These are the people that need us and we are truly irreplaceable for. And we should not be taking the need for us to be present for them for granted. And when we talk about burnout, 
Um, it is not the established rheumatologists, the, the mature rheumatologists who are burning out. There, as many of you know, I'm sure, at the last ACR, there was one poster that said that burnout was 54%. All right, and we say, oh, well, that's so much better than the on average 80% that they reported, you know, in the States, and uh, sorry, 80% in the UK and 79% in, in um, the States for all physicians. Okay, all right, so we're, we're the happy specialty. That's great. Only one in two of us are burned out. One in two. And furthermore, it is the new generation of rheumatologists that are burning out. It is a different world. And the challenge is, is that we have not adjusted to the times. We are still practicing in a way that is not taking much into consideration digital technology, the needs of our patients, the access of information that our patients have. Right? They expect more from us. Gone are the days where I'm the doctor, you will listen, and you jab yourself with this methotrexate once a week. That's for you, Carter. And then, you know, I'm going to see you in three months and we'll figure it out. Right? Those days are no longer present. It is so hard to practice medicine now. And what is burning out rheumatologists? And I'll be honest, I burned out in my first year. I took over a 39-year-old practice, pregnant with a third kid, establishing my practice, my husband establishing his in a new town. It was too much. That is what forced me to say, I have to practice differently. There must be a better way. When we look at the young generation of rheumatologists, they will say, I will make less money rather than work how my predecessors have. That's not right for patient care. And furthermore, right, I think the sole reason that we are rheumatologists to diagnose, treat, and problem solve, that should be preserved. We did not go to medical school to fill out forms, to jump through hoops like show dogs. So what we need to do is say, let's think of a healthy way. And I, and I mentioned it earlier, it needs to be a win for all parties involved, right? Patients deserve better care. We cannot say that we are going to make the bottleneck tighter because we cannot work in the same uh, model. What we need to say is we're going to open up that bottleneck. We are going to improve the work-life balance for physicians and at the same time increase efficiency so patients can receive the care that they deserve in a timely manner. And what I challenge the listeners now, and this is what all doctors, not just rheumatologists, but all doctors should be able to achieve. This is what I do. When you see your last patient of the day, no matter how long you've been working or no matter how late you are, you spend 20 to 30 minutes tying up loose ends then you go home and you are home with your loved ones. You're doing what makes you feel mentally or physically well, but you do what defines you outside of medicine and you don't think about work until the next morning when you go back to clinic. You don't open that EMR because you are already caught up. This is what we should be doing. This is what I do. And it is the one to three hours every night of administrative burden. The one to three hours, Janet, isn't that how much time people spend in traffic in Toronto per day? Yes, Could yeah. you imagine? Put yeah. another one to three hours. You just spend all that time in traffic and now add administrative work on an EMR. Because you can't do it in the car if you're the driver. Right. This is not acceptable. So this is a call to action right, for our listeners to demand better. And please you know, don't feel that you have to work the same way. You absolutely can be doing incredible things to improve the lives of your patients who are on your wait list. And you can do so by still having a win, by still spending time with either yourself, with your loved ones, with your friends. Janet, Michelle, thank you so much. You're both really inspirational talkers. Thank you for joining me. Great. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Michelle Teo, a clinical instructor and community rheumatologist in Penticton, BC, and Dr. Janet Pope, 
a professor of medicine at Western University and division head of rheumatology at St. Joseph's Health Centre in London, Ontario. Together, they provided a lot of important insights into their streams of practice and extra-clinical responsibilities. While there are a lot of differences between their practices, there's also a lot of similarities. People like myself who are new to practice need to think hard about priorities, but be reassured that you can contribute equally whether you work in community or academic rheumatology. That's it for this episode of Around the Room, the Canadian Rheumatology Association podcast. If you enjoyed your time with us, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And be sure to share this podcast with your colleagues and on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.